Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. COVID-19 vaccine mandates are controversial, and unfortunately, they are causing deep divisions within our communities, our families, and even the Catholic Church. The NCBC has taken its share of criticism for its position on the issue, but instead of fostering further division, we're seeking to engage those who disagree with us in respectful but critical dialogue. As such, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Jason Eberl. Jason is Professor of Healthcare Ethics and Philosophy and Director of the Albert Nagy Center for Healthcare Ethics at St. Louis University. I'm also happy to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. John Brahaney, NCBC Executive Vice President. Jason Eberl and John Brahaney, welcome or welcome back to Bioethics on Air. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jason, as a uh, new guest on our podcast, John Brahaney has been on before, so I think we, uh, our listeners know him. So, Jason, as a new guest on the podcast, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically education, work experience, leading up to your uh, present position at St. Louis University. Yeah, thank you. And first of all, I just want to, you know, again, thank you and John for joining me uh, in this today, for inviting me um, to, to have this critical dialogue, because you know, these are you know, important issues and it's, they're issues I don't think that we never really fully addressed them prior to something like this pandemic. And so uh, I think we're all still kind of feeling our way through what the right way to, to apply the principles are. Anyways, uh, that being said, so yeah, I'm Jason Eberl and I actually got my PhD in philosophy from St. Louis University where I'm uh, back at now. Uh, I studied under Professor Eleanor Stump, a uh, noted Thomist, and uh, the late great Jesuit Father John Cavanaugh, who first introduced me really to the the value of taking things like Aquinas's understanding of the human person and natural law theory and virtue theory and applying that to uh, contemporary bioethical issues, not just the sort of issues we you know, bioethicists deal with on a, a nearly constant basis like abortion or euthanasia, but what were at the time uh, emerging issues like human embryonic stem cell research, cloning, uh, animal-human chimeras and hybrids, things of that nature. And so I approached my work primarily, again, as a, as a trained philosopher, as a metaphysician who's doing, you know, applying these to these bioethical issues. Uh, so after graduating from SLU, my uh, first job was at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, which was quite a learning curve for me because I didn't expect to land a job at a large state university uh, doing bioethics. But, you know, thankfully I had very supportive colleagues, even though I was the uh, I wasn't the only Catholic in the philosophy department, but certainly the only Thomist and the only person doing uh, anything in the realm of Catholic bioethics. But I spent 10 years there, spent my career there, got tenure, and then I moved to Marion University, which is a small Franciscan university, also in Indianapolis, and they were launching a new osteopathic medical school. And so they hired me to basically build from the ground up an integrated clinical ethics curriculum uh, within this new uh, DO school. And uh, so I did that and honestly thought I was going to be there for, for quite a while um, until I got a phone call from my good friend, uh, Dr. Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Bishop, who was then director of the Nagy Center here. And he wanted to move back into a faculty role and was looking for someone gullible enough to take over the administrative leadership of the center. And, you know, being aware of SLU's reputation, not only uh, as a 
general academic institution, but also as a place that through this center particularly uh, trains people who have had held prominent roles throughout Catholic healthcare, Catholic healthcare ethics. Um, it was an opportunity too good to pass down. So I joined the faculty in 2018, uh, became director in 2019, and have uh, been dealing with uh, the vagaries of that ever since. <laughs> Yes, the lovely world of a of an administrator. So, what, with that um, with that in mind, Jason, what are your responsibilities, both as a professor of healthcare ethics and philosophy, as well as the director of the Nagy Center for Healthcare Ethics? Yeah. So, for over forty years, the Nagy Center has uh, provided bioethics instruction, uh, starting with SLU's medical students and providing clinical ethics consultation at SLU's hospitals, um, to expanding to we teach required ethics courses uh, in the School of Nursing, uh, to health law students, in our School of Public Health and Social Justice, and um, and a lot of our pre-health professions undergrads, uh, about, you know, four to 5,000 students altogether, uh, take uh, an undergraduate course uh, with us at some point. Uh, in addition, we have a PhD program, uh, which has which started in 1996, and uh, we have degrees. Uh, we train medical students, law students, clinicians, and students with a f- background usually in philosophy or theology, sometimes some other discipline. And so in my particular role as an educator, uh, I teach primarily our graduate students. I'm doing a graduate seminar right now called Philosophical Methods and Bioethics. And then I teach undergrads. Uh, I teach a fun course uh, that Jeff had asked me to develop uh, called Bioethics and Popular Culture, where we use film, music, television uh, to kind of help students understand the really complex issues uh, that they sometimes don't always understand from the dry readings we assign them. Um, I also get to teach philosophy students, which is really uh really cool. Uh, I'm actually teaching a course this spring on metaphysics of persons and bioethical implications, uh, primarily based around a book I published last year with Notre Dame Press. Um, And then with my administrative role, it's usually uh, curricular battles, (laughs) but mostly maintaining good relations with uh, our our contacts, our colleagues in in nursing, public health, law, medicine. Uh, We're we're housed in the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, So, I guess you say my primary role is keeping my dean happy and supportive of our right. center, which he is. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. All right, so your dialogue partner today is going to be John Brahaney, and John just wanted to say hi. Um, Great, wonderful to be here again, Joe. All right, and many of our our, our listeners will will know John. He's been on uh, a number of podcasts uh, over the past few years. So in this interview. Jason, John, and I will be discussing two essays, Jason, that you wrote or co-wrote back in August of 2020. The first is from America Magazine, and it's titled, quote, Vaccine Mandates Are Coming, Catholics Have No Moral Reason to Oppose Them, unquote. The second is from the National Catholic Reporter, titled, Catholics Have No Grounds to Claim Exemption from COVID-19 Vaccine Mandates. And that essay you uh, co-authored with uh, Toby Winwright, correct? Yeah, correct, who's uh, on our faculty here at the center, yep. All right, so in, so in terms of a format here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, I'll frame an issue, ask a question. Jason will be first to respond, uh, followed by John Brahaney, and then we'll see, uh, you know, if there's if there's further dialogue, we'll do that and, and, and go from there. There's a number of different topics that I'd like to talk about, uh, but I will identify those as we move through them. So Jason, first question, um, it's really kind of an overview question. 
you stated in both of the essays, and I'll, I'll uh, link both of those essays in the show notes so people can uh, can take a look at them. Jason, you stated in both essays that there is no sufficient moral reason for a Catholic to request a religious exemption from a COVID-19 vaccine. Can you explain this claim? Yeah. So again, I'm grateful for this opportunity to articulate my views more fully than you know I can in a brief 1,500 word op-ed uh, in a fraternal, constructive dialogue uh, with you, with you and John. Um, constructive, yet yeah, I know we're also going to be critical of each other. So again, I welcome that. Um, so you know, I really like how you frame this question, Joe, because you know the central concern of my essays isn't the validity of vaccine mandates themselves. That's of course something we can we can talk about. Uh, or whether there might be a legitimate moral reason for somebody to request an exemption. But the specific question, as you just framed it, of whether Catholics, qua Catholics, as Catholics, have a sufficient moral reason to request a religious-based exemption. And on this point, uh, the the main, uh, the cardinal point at which my argument hinges uh, is that the church, through the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith, uh, spoke definitively on this in its December 2020 statement. And these words that I'm about to quote are actually italicized in the official version of the document. Quote, it is morally acceptable to receive COVID-19 vaccines that have used cell lines from aborted fetuses in their research and production process, end quote. Um, this determination was actually not a new determination by the CDF. Um, it's based on an earlier 2005 assessment on the morality receiving other types of vaccines that were also created or developed using uh, these same or similar types of cell lines. So while this statement does not entail that one ought to be vaccinated, it is clear that in the absence of any other articulated rationale against the currently approved or authorized COVID-19 vaccines, there is no magisterially defined reason why Catholics, as Catholics, should request a religious-based exemption. And this is why we've seen various Episcopal authorities in New York, Chicago, San Diego, and elsewhere uh, instructing their priests not to sign religious exemption requests from their parishioners. John Berhaney, your response. Uh, okay. And uh, again, wonderful to be able to talk these things out because, of course, you know, we, we read that line and, you know, reacted to it a little bit our, ourselves in the office. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, that matters here are, are more nuanced even, even than you just said uh, in that most recent reply for a couple of reasons. And I mean, just briefly, I mean, it's, it's true that the church has taught through the CDF that it is permissible, you know, to receive these vaccines. Certain vaccines in general, going back to 2008 and the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Now, to say it is permissible, you know, does not mean that it is obligatory. And I just want to put a little placeholder. Uh, maybe we can come back in a few minutes uh, and talk about what makes uh, a church teaching authoritative or binding. Uh, but anyway, tr they, the church has taught that they are permissible. However, um, is there a good reason or valid reason for a Catholic to explore uh, a variety of other features of this issue and perhaps to uh, request an exemption. And I would say yes, uh, for two reasons. One, one's go one reason will relate to the fact that there are other church teachings on uh, the matters at hand, and the other is going to relate to uh, American law. 
so first, you know, there are other church teachings uh, that bear on profound issues related to a decision that someone would make to accept a vaccine or not, including uh, formation of conscience itself, uh, proper stewardship uh, of human life and human health, which would get into ordinary and extraordinary means. Um, so, so, you know, a person could look at those teachings and think through them and perhaps, you know, for sound reasons, uh, come to a decision that accepting a vaccine in a particular situation is not a good ethical choice, all things considering. So I do think there are other teachings beyond the narrow fact that the church has said that these, these vaccines or use of these vaccines is permissible. Uh, the other thing, you know, we talk about requesting a religious exemption. And, and I can't speak for the rest of the world, but that, that does have a certain meaning uh, in American, uh, I would say, it's a combination of culture, uh, constitutional law, statutory law, uh, and, and other features of American life. And, and I think there, there can be uh, good grounds for uh, a Catholic in America to, to seek a religious exemption. You know, we might we might get into this a little deeper when we talk about common good or something like that. But but just briefly, uh, federal courts in America have held that individuals uh, in seeking protections for their religious beliefs are not, in a sense, limited to the strict teachings uh, of their own church. I mean, there have been states that have tried to say, you can't get a religious exemption unless you can show me, uh, you know, a creedal statement or a catechism statement uh, that, that says uh, that this is wrong. And uh, federal district courts, uh, multiple federal district courts have adopted the standard that you cannot uh, limit protection for ind individual beliefs so strictly. So uh, I do think, uh, as stated, it's it's probably just a little bit of an overstatement. Yeah, I was wondering, Jason, I, I was if you could clarify something for me as well, too. So maybe I'm reading the statement differently than you're intending it, because you made the distinction in your in your reply between the church's teaching, uh, you've stated very clearly the church's teachings that receiving a COVID-19 vaccine is morally acceptable, and no, neither John or I would, would dispute that. However, the issue here is the vaccine mandates where government officials, public health officials, actually really government officials, are saying that receiving one of these um, vaccines is obligatory. So there there seems to be, I, I was wondering if you could kind of address that a little bit. Um, yes, they're acceptable, but are you, are you, is your statement there then extending to say if they're obligatory, a Catholic or anyone else has no recourse uh, against them? So, to, to, so in terms of John, the second point that John was bringing up, which, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not an American constitutional lawyer. I don't have expertise <laughs> in this area. Um, and, and my argument is not addressing whether or not constitutionally the, the government should allow for relig religious exemptions in a broad sense. That's not the concern. The concern is whether, regardless of whether the government allows you as a Catholic to have an exemption or not, do you have a good reason as a Catholic to request an exemption? And if the only defined 
moral concern that one has as a moral concern is the derivation of these uh, COVID-19 vaccines from these fetal cell, immortalized fetal cell lines, um, then that's what I'm saying is that the church has said, well, that's not, a, that's not a reason. You, you can get these vaccines for that reason. That's not a reason to request an exemption. Now to your broader question about uh, government mandates. I mean, this is again, a separate question I'm not treating in these essays, but let's explore this a bit. So I like to turn as in all things to Aquinas as a starting point. And Aquinas in his treatise on law describes the legitimate role of governmental and institutional authorities in crafting what he terms human or positive law, which are more specific determinations of the general principles of natural or divine law. Now, such authorities can err, of course, and when they do, there are legitimate grounds for acts of civil disobedience. Uh, Dr. King, in his famous letter from Birmingham jail, specifically quotes both Augustine and Aquinas uh, on this point. But to engage in an act of civil disobedience, which is, again, not what an exemption is, I, I'm, I want to clarify that, but I'm just, again, framing this in, in how Aquinas thinks the individual relates to the state, to engage in a legitimate act of civil disobedience, one should carefully examine the formation of their own conscience and whether their motivations are truly conscientious or whether conscience is being used as an excuse for disobeying legitimate authorities for other personally or politically motivated reasons. And on this point, the fathers of the Second Vatican Councils spoke directly in Dignitatis Humanae, which is this, you know, this foundational document on religious freedom. Uh, in number paragraph number eight of that document, forgive me, this is kind of a long quote, but I think it's worth us digesting. Quote, Many pressures are brought to bear upon the men of our day to the point where the danger arises lest they lose the possibility of acting on their own judgment, right? That's the central concern here. On the other hand, not a few can be found who seem inclined to use the name, use the name of freedom as the pretext for refusing to submit to authority and for making light of the duty of obedience. Wherefore, the Vatican Council urges everyone especially those who are charged with the task of educating others, to do their utmost to form men who, on the one hand, will respect the moral order and be obedient to lawful authority, and on the other hand, will be lovers of true freedom men. In other words, who will come to decisions on their own judgment and in the light of truth, govern their activities with a sense of responsibility, and strive after what is true and right, willing always to join with others in cooperative effort. Last line. Religious freedom, therefore, ought to have this further purpose and aim, namely, that men may come to act with greater responsibility in fulfillment, in fulfilling their duties in community life. Um, yeah, I, I, that's that, that's very good. And I, I will um, I'll take some responsibility for getting us off on a legal track here at the beginning. I know I, I think we had uh, agreed we'd talk about the common good later. Um, you know, but I, I can I can certainly agree with that. Uh, I'll just note quickly that um, I you know I, I certainly accept that. I, I think though, then um, when we get into uh, I guess the legal uh, and rational basis for mandates, because uh, you know a law is a rational ordinance uh, for the common good uh, you know, established by those with proper authority. Uh, we, we have to make sure that it's a rational ordinance. And um, currently, I think what we're facing, uh, and I don't want to get 
almost any further than this, uh, except to say, but we're not seeing a lot of well-crafted legal mandates. I don't think a single state uh, has yet established a vaccine mandate yet. You know, we know the federal government does not have police powers, even though uh, President Biden is trying to use uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, But I think maybe we ought to I did introduce uh, that thought, and I I introduced it because if a Catholic is going to uh, ask for a religious exemption, I I do think American Catholics ask for it in a certain legal and cultural context. But but to get all the way back, I think, to an initial focus on whether Catholics have a moral uh, reason or a moral ground to say is this good and should I do it, a valid consideration is, I would say, yes, uh, an important but narrow issue of abortion-derived cell lines uh, as they relate to vaccines. I think there are other significant ethical considerations as well. And I just think, and this, of course, why I think we're talking about this, um, I think we have to sort these things out and, and you know, we, we've flown on autopilot a long way, it seems to me, uh, on a lot of these issues. How many of us have uh, thought through the serious ethical implications of whether we've gotten a flu vaccine or not, you know, over the last uh, 10 or 20 years, you know? Um, but uh, anyway, I think no moral ground is a little too a broad of a statement. Uh, and then and then there's the question, I think, of what does it mean to respect uh, authoritative teachings of the church, you know, and, and what has the church uh, taught and how should that guide? Yeah, lots of stuff there, but let's, uh, let's move on to the next topic, which actually is, thanks, John, for the uh, nice segue, <laughs> authoritative teachings and statements from the Catholic Church. All right, so Jason, In the America article from back in August, you stated this, quote, if a Catholic decides that it would be wrong to receive a COVID-19 vaccine, they are in opposition to the church's magisterial determination that receiving the vaccine is not only morally acceptable, but also, according according to Pope Francis, constitutes a moral obligation in order to protect one's own health and safeguard the common good, unquote. All right, so Jason... In making this claim about moral obligation, you cite a January 11th, 2021 interview of Pope Francis with an Italian television station. And uh, this, this, uh, the, the link is to a National Catholic Reporter uh, article, which interestingly is titled, Pope Francis, Pope Francis Suggests People Have a Moral Obligation to Take a COVID-19 Vaccine. That's an interesting title. But that, that's not the main issue here. So my, my question is this. This interview was given nine, nine and a half months ago just after uh, vaccines had become available. And the interview, as, as far as I know, did not address vaccine mandates because vaccine mandates wasn't an issue at the time. So with this realities in mind, how do you see this interview as an authoritative teaching of the Catholic Church? Yeah, thanks for bringing this up, Joe, because you're absolutely right that in that, uh, that interview, the Holy Father is not addressing the laicity of vaccine mandates by institutional government authorities. 
Uh, and further, these remarks are neither, you know, ex cathedra pronouncements, of which there's only been two in the history of the church, um, nor do they carry the authoritative weight of something like an encyclical or even the CDF's, you know, uh, statement. Um, rather, what I think Pope Francis is doing here, and I think the NCR title is, yeah, sufficiently cautious in saying suggesting, um, but in this making the suggestion, I think Pope Francis is attempting, um, both in this brief remark and in a later Spanish language public service announcement uh, that's gone all over the web, uh, in which he appears along with many other prominent prelates, uh, to inform the universal, excuse me, to inform the individual consciences of the faithful in his magisterial role as universal pastor, right? And what his message, what I'm hearing, is that there is not only is there no moral reason not to be vaccinated um, per the CDF statement, but that there is a positive moral reason to be vaccinated uh, for the sake of safeguarding both one's own health, which is a duty of stewardship we have over our own bodies, and that of others under the auspices of the church's social principles of solidarity, uh, promoting the common good, uh, and the preferential option for the, the poor and vulnerable among us, including those who are vulnerable due to their health conditions. So that's how I, I understand what uh, the, the nature of what Pope Francis is doing there. All right. John Berhandy, your response. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate those, uh, those points of Jason. I think we're largely in agreement. I've seen some, some other articles that have made similar points, probably even more strongly, you know, stressing, uh, you know, that, that one is in opposition to the church's teaching uh, if one doesn't uh, accept, I guess either uh, the interview of Pope Francis or or the uh, the CDF note, you know, I, I and Jason has clearly uh, you know almost stolen a little bit of my thunder, but you know there are there's actually a system whereby the church can teach and and let people know you know that they're saying something of significance something that is binding, something that should guide uh, in a significant way. Um, you know, the, the papacy uh, took on uh, a much greater role in moral guidance in the church, probably probably starting in the early 1700s, certainly in the 19th century, it became much more pronounced. Doctrine of papal infallibility was declared at the first Vatican Council, and I think uh, theologians spent probably the next 50 uh, to 70 years trying to distinguish theologically, you know, what the Pope uh, would say, what, you know, when, when would it be ex cathedra or not? And, and when did pe- when do people have to obey it or not? You know, and there, there are some pretty clear rules. And, um, you know, I would say just to maybe put a little more uh, flesh on the bone here. You know, popes can teach authoritatively uh, in a number of ways, sometimes with the documents that they use. Jason uh, mentioned an encyclical. You know, there there are some other documents, apostolic constitutions, apostolic letters, apostolic exhortations, even an entire homily, uh, you know, and, and of course, an, an allocution or a speech can be forms uh, of teaching. Um, and yet this was an interview and a public, uh, service announcement. The one thing which I did watch, I think that was directed. I got the impression from the 
cardinals involved. It was perhaps mainly directed to uh, Spanish-speaking countries, perhaps in uh, Central and South uh, America. But the Second Vatican Council also gives us uh, a way of understanding, uh, and of course the popes, I think, operate in this regard, a way of understanding when we have to give what's called religious submission of mind and will to the teachings of the church. And they say we should do this. Uh, the, the Pope will let us know, uh, conformably with his manifest mind and intention, which will be known uh, principally by the character of the document in question, or the frequency with which a certain doctrine is proposed, or the manner in which the the uh, the doctrine is formulated. You know, there there we get a set of things. So we get the type of document. Uh, and again, I ran through uh, what some potential documents are. The frequency. I know. I I don't know how much the Pope. Uh, I I definitely uh, am aware of those two things. I haven't heard of much else, but two mentions is not necessarily a lot. You you think of Pope John Paul II, uh, and the way that he came back, say, to the, the uh, issue of contraception, you know, frequent, frequently over the course uh, of his papacy, or by the manner in which the doctrine is formulated. Again, I, I spent much of my adult life under the papacy of uh, St. Pope John Paul II, and uh, I, I would never discourage anybody uh, from paying due regard to uh, authentic guidance from the Pope. But you think of how the Pope, uh, St. John Paul II, formulated his teaching on abortion in Evangelium Vitae, you know, very, very serious. Now, you could say, well, that's abortion, and this is just accepting a vaccine in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Still, I, I think the Pope has not in a sense, let us know that this is a serious obligation. You know, it, it's certainly a, a good to be done. It's not something to be rejected out of hand. Uh, it's not something uh, to be rejected based on unfounded fears. But nevertheless, I, I think there's a ways to go uh, before we could think of some sort of papal authoritative, serious guidance being given, you know. And the same is true uh, with regard to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. You know, it has instruments uh, for conveying authoritative guidance. Of course, the, the CDF, uh, I you know, really, I think in terms of magisterial teachings, has greater magisterial authority than any other congregation. And of course, any other advisory group like a pontifical academy, you know, or something like that. But I, I believe that the, um, the, the, the most serious instruments that the CDF has when it comes to morality, issues of morals, are declarations like the Declaration on Euthanasia, uh, responsa, uh, which are carefully you know, considered questions which are put forward by uh, individual bishops or bishops' conferences and then authoritative responses, and instructions like 
the instruction uh, on the gift of human life, Donum Vitae. Uh, you know, notes, I would say, are farther down the list. Of course, it was, uh, you know, sort of a timely intervention. And it was a timely intervention to say that these vaccines are uh, acceptable or permissible. And of course, it also said that as a rule, the decision to accept vaccination should be voluntary. You know, so it it actually said a couple of things. And it went on to say, uh, and I would say to outline in, in more general terms that everyone has an obligation to the common good. And if they're not vaccinated, they need to do different things to make sure that they are serving the, the the health of the common good and the people around them. Yeah, John, uh, you're, you're, again, segue into uh, into the next question, because um, that's exactly where I wanted to go next, is to talk about the uh, the the CDF uh, December 20, uh, December 20th of last year, their note. Now, Jason, you you uh, referenced this this document earlier, saying that uh, the CDF stated that uh, taking a, or accepting a moral, excuse me, accepting a COVID-19 vaccine is morally acceptable. And that's that's absolutely true. But this, um, the CDF note also said, uh, and, I, and I'll just read, John Berhaney just to kind of summarize it, but, but just let me read what, uh, this is directly from the CDF itself. And, and they stated, quote, practical reason makes evident that vaccination is not, as a rule, a moral obligation, and that therefore it must be voluntary. In other words, if someone chooses, if someone accepts a COVID-19 vaccine, it has to be their voluntary choice. In any case, from the ethical point of view, the morality of vaccination depends not only on the duty to protect one's own health, but also on the duty to pursue the common good. In the absence of other means to stop or even prevent the epidemic, the common good may recommend vac- vaccination, especially to protect the weakest and most exposed. Those who, however, for reasons of conscience, refuse vaccines produced with cell lines from abortive fetuses must do their utmost to avoid by other prophylactic means and appropriate behavior, becoming vehicles for the transmission of the infectious agent. So there's a couple of things going on um, in that statement. Jason, in light of that, how authoritative is this statement from the CDF in, in terms of the vaccine mandate question? And how should a Catholic understand it and maybe understand it in light of Pope Francis's TV interviews in the PSA that you mentioned? Yeah, no, this is definitely an issue we need to proceed with uh, a lot of care and nuance just as john you know uh you know laid out the nuances of levels of magisterial authority which is a very very helpful uh breakdown for for our listeners um and so i think here again uh, i'm going to be introducing some nuance uh maybe we can call philosophical nuance um so first of all i would say that you know i i take the cdf statement as the church's most authoritative statement to date regarding COVID-19 vaccines. Um, although it's worth noting that just as you, Joe, noted that Pope Francis's interview comment was long before the mandate debate arose, the CDS statement was a month even before that. Real briefly in response to John's point, though, about you know the level of authority of this being a note, and again, the question of uh, the repetition of a teaching, you know, again, it's two times enough, but, you know, uh, the C- the CDF you know did address this question of of vaccines uh, other vaccines derived from these uh, same same or similar types of fetal cell lines uh, 
you know, way back in 2005, um, again, was in response to a letter, not from a bishop's conference, so it's not a formal responsa, but it is a letter in which they laid out what has often been referenced uh, as, as sort of defining the church's statement uh, or position on the laicity of, of receiving these vaccines, uh, even as we witness to the, the evil of abortion and so on and, and, and how these cell lines arose. So the CDF was not inventing a, a new teaching. It wasn't that, like they gave a rushed teaching because of the COVID-19 pandemic. They said, okay, here's the pandemic. Here's these vaccines. Oh, we've spoken about this before. Let's repeat, right? You know, um, not quite that simple, but that's, that's how I take the statement. So, so here's the nuance with respect to the quoted passage, uh, particularly the initial sentence, right, which seems to speak directly to the question of whether vaccination could licitly be mandated. Uh, and it gives the appearance of offering a negative response, for sure. Um, but there's a couple key ambiguities in the language the CDF uses. Um, and I did do some going back into the, uh, uh, the Italian and so on, trying to uh, look at, but, you know, parse out and, and, it didn't resolve the ambiguity to try looking at it in, in other languages. Um, surprise, surprise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so first, when the CDF says that vaccination is not, as a rule, a moral obligation, uh, we must note that there's two ways in which something could be a rule, absolutely or prima facie. Uh, prima facie is Latin. It means like on first glance, on the, on the face of things. Um, but the key is that the prima facie rule is, is non-absolute. So if we understand the CDF as asserting an absolute rule, then this would seem to stand in opposition to the Holy Father's assertion, again, not at the same level of magisterial authority, but again, he said it, he has said it twice. And, you know, the interview was, you know, not an off the cuff remark or the the PSA, I mean, the the later Spanish language PSA, right? That was months later. That was obviously a well-considered coordinated effort, not only among the Pope, but many other Spanish speaking of, uh, uh, prelates to encourage people to be vaccinated, right? And 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 once again, uh, putting this in terms of a moral obligation. So so it does seem, you know, again, putting the question of governmental mandates aside, simply the question of is it as a rule, you know, not an obligation? These seem to be directly contradictory. If we take the the CDF as asserting an absolute rule, my faith in how the Holy Spirit inspires the Church's magisterial authorities motivates me to accept an alternative interpretation that places the Pope and the CDF in alignment and not at odds, which would be that we understand the phrase as a rule in a prima facie sense, meaning that under ordinary circumstances, yes, vaccination is not a moral obligation. However, the current pandemic has arguably placed us in what's sometimes referred to as a state of exception, which doesn't mean that moral rules are abrogated or, or, or no longer apply, but that they might be applied in different ways, wherein one moral rule, namely the requirement to safeguard one's own health and promote the common good, overrides the prima facie rule against vaccination being a moral obligation, whereas in non-pandemic times, it would be the reverse. These are subtle nuances of deontological ethics. Again, forgive me, you brought a philosopher onto this podcast. So second, um, when the CDF says that vaccination must be voluntary, the term voluntary is also inherently ambiguous insofar as it could be taken to mean either that one should not be coerced in any way to be vaccinated or that one should not literally be forced to be vaccinated, by which I mean you're held down and jabbed in the arm against your will. 
So while vaccine mandates can certainly be construed justifiably or not as coercive, um, they're not strictly forcing them to be vaccinated against their will. So that's just, again, that doesn't resolve the the, the apparent uh, dispute here, but I think that that's some clarifications we should keep in mind, some nuances. John Berhaney. Well, <laughs> uh, that, it, it is interesting. I, um, I, I do appreciate that analysis. I guess I would just make two points, you know, and I, again, you guys, I, I, I think are, are younger men than me, but uh, I grew up in the post-Vatican II church where it seemed that, uh, you know, one of the one of the main jobs uh, of a lot of theologians was to challenge uh, settled authoritative teachings of the church on a range of topics, you know, and uh, and to dispute, you know, uh, in any number of ways, uh, again, to take humane vitae, you know, to dispute whether it was authoritative and binding, for example, uh, because it wasn't given ex cathedra, or was it given ex cathedra? And if it wasn't given an ex cathedra, then was it a reformable teaching? Could it change, you know, in some little respect? And if it could change in some respect in the future, that meant that it really wasn't settled. And so, what could someone decide to do on a Saturday night? Um, you know, I, I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm a person who uh, thinks uh, and and encourages people. Uh, to follow the authoritative teachings of the church. Having said all that, the church knows how to teach authoritatively. In fact, it's it's a responsibility of the church, you know, to to guide uh, the the flock of Christ, the church, especially with regard to uh, complex moral issues, to allow a legitimate zone for freedom as well. And I, I think the church does that uh, to a great extent. But, uh, and, you know, we're, we're all struggling in these times, you know, for the last, I, I guess it's 20 months uh, plus, you know, we're struggling to keep up. And of course, we, we have other ethical issues we're dealing with. And of course, the church has a lot going on too. So having said all that, I, I do think that, uh the teachings of the Holy Father are clearly meant to encourage people. Uh, I would say he, he's encouraging people to get vaccinated. Uh, it's a type of exhortation. People should take that seriously. But is it binding in a way to say that they must do something? You know, they, they must, whether they think it is right uh, or not, right for them, uh, etc., and I, I think it, it, it doesn't rise to that level. I'm going to come back to a point here in a second uh, with regard to the binding force of positive moral obligations in general. But um, anyway, uh, he's certainly exhorting and the CDF issued, I would say, a lower level document with in some haste, you know, to to make a couple of important points. Um I think the church knows how to teach with authority and really needs to, um, if it's going to bind uh, consciences, needs to come back with a much more developed teaching in a much clearer manner uh, to help to resolve some of these questions, you know. And and let me just say a quick word about uh, positive moral obligations. Um, 
And just briefly, uh, of course, in the moral life, uh, the first role is that we should avoid moral evil and seek to achieve and to protect moral goods. Generally, negative moral norms, uh, such as uh, do not murder and do not commit adultery, are are held to bind some of them uh, in, in all cases uh, in times uh, and for all people. And in general, negative moral norms that inflict harm uh, are held to bind uh, more than positive moral obligations like love your neighbor or honor your father and mother uh, and things like that. And, and what we're faced with here, I think, when it comes to immunization uh, is a positive moral obligation, accept a medical intervention to do some good for oneself and for others. But, but it's not a negative moral obligation uh, in the sense of, you know, do not murder, do not harm, uh, and things like that. So, you know, I say all that just to bring up the fact that there is generally more leeway for prudential decision-making when it comes to uh, positive moral norms or decisions about how to serve, promote, and protect uh, moral goods. And um, anyway, so I I think there is more leeway. This, I I guess, gets all the way back to the question, uh, is there a good moral or ethical reason to perhaps not accept a given vaccine at a given time uh, to do this as a Catholic? And is there any, in a sense, authoritative guidance in the teachings of the church that would determine an answer one way or another? And and I think there there are good grounds to think through this very carefully, uh, ethically, and perhaps to come to a decision not to accept vaccination. And I, I think church teaching on this matter is is not well defined. I, I don't think it's settled. And, you know, if Pope Francis uh, and the bishops want to come at this in a much more serious way, you know, I, I look forward to the effort. Yeah, I was wondering if I could just, Jason, if I could kind of come back um with a little follow-up question, so in this in this uh, paragraph, it's section five from the from the CDF's uh, December twentieth note, you, you spoke about the language about as a rule and voluntary, and I think there's you know good ongoing discussion um, concerning that. How then? I just like to focus attention on the last line of this paragraph, where the where the CDF says those who, however, for reasons of conscience refuse vaccines produced with cell lines, blah, 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 in their duty. It seems to me that the CDF is recognizing that people are going to have, uh, well, for reasons of conscience, people are going to refuse this vaccine. How, how do you, um, how, I, I, what would you say about that language? Well, <clears throat> so uh, I'll, I'll respond directly to that, and then I want to make just a couple brief points in response to uh, a couple sure. of things John just said. So first of all, recognizing that some people will refuse the vaccine for reasons of conscience doesn't necessarily mean that people ought to refuse the vaccine for reasons of conscience, right? I recognize that people will commit murders, but that doesn't mean I think people ought to commit murders. Uh, Do you really think that's what the CDF is saying? Uh, Again, as John said, the church knows how to teach. They would have used clear language if they meant something different. Um, So there's, so what they're saying is that, okay. And you know, there may be, 
that there are going to be people who, for reasons of conscience, maybe legitimate reasons of conscience, maybe illegitimate reasons of conscience, again, erring conscience binds. So it doesn't mean the CDF is necessarily referring to people who have a well-formed conscience. But the point is, some people will, they, they predict, will refuse the vaccine for reasons of conscience. That's just a you know, descriptive fact. And they're saying, yeah, if you're going to do that, then again, you need to take one of these other measures. One of the things that the CDF, I think, is absolutely clear on was that if one is refusing the vaccine, whether or requesting an exemption, whether for medical reasons or for you know non-medical, conscientious or other moral reason, then um, uh, one does need to abide by all other public health safeguards that are demonstrated to be you know necessary to prevent transmitting the disease. But what a Catholic and good conscience cannot do, the CDF I think is being very clear, is refuse a vaccine refuse to wear face masks in public, refuse to be quarantined if you've been exposed, refuse to socially distance. Again, as so, insofar as public health authorities say that these are things we ought to be doing, hopefully we'll get to a point where we don't have to do all these things. Um, right. But that's, but that's the, the idea. You can't just do nothing and just go about your business as if this pandemic is not happening. Um, but j- just real quickly, a couple points that, that John brought up. I mean, yeah, there there are obviously dissenting theologians and, and ethicists in the church. Um, I do not align myself with them because I think what I'm trying to do is not dissent from what the church is saying in these documents, but is attempting to understand uh, what the church is saying. And and you know, John John says that the church knows how to teach these things. Well, I believe in I have faith in how the Spirit moves the magisterium of the church. On the other hand, John also said that the CDF does need to give us a clearer statement, a more well thought out statement, and I would like to see one too from either the CDF or from Pope Francis uh, himself. And and so the the church itself will eventually maybe clear be more clear, but it hasn't been so clear yet. But you know, there's a there's an interesting uh, analogy in. The strategy that John just outlined of these, you know, post-Vatican II dissenting theologians from Humana Vitae is they say, look, it's not an ex-cathedra pronouncement. It's a lower level document. It's open to, to reformability. And John, too, is saying, oh, look at this CDF statement. It's a lo- even really low level document. This Pope Francis says that's not even a, you know, something official. Um, so, yeah, that's reformable. That's something we can challenge and, and dissent from if we if we so choose. And not willy-nilly. I mean, John was very clear that one has to have good conscientious reasons. But what right. I still am challenging is what is those alternative reasons? Other than some concerns about religious freedom and American law and so on and so forth. Again, this is this is why, you know, some people have characterized this as a culture war issue. Um, and, and that it's about drawing a line in the sand, um, as opposed to really understanding how, how we respond to this pandemic, although there is a link to concerns about abortion because of the origin of these fetal cell lines, um, calls for a very different moral response than our moral response to abortion. John Merhaney, would like, would you like to uh, respond to that? Um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, again, briefly, I, I, I did say that the church knows how to teach. Um, in other words, it, it, it has a couple thousand year, but even over the last uh, four to five hundred years, I would say, uh, there's developed a, a practice uh, over time and so on. That doesn't mean that those who are holding the offices at any given point in time 
you know, follow that discipline necessarily, uh, you know, and sometimes they, they, they simply fail to teach or, or say anything uh, at all. So um, uh, just because somebody has said something, uh, a CDF note or an interview uh, or public service announcement from Pope Francis um, doesn't mean it's good enough. I guess one of the points I want to make, uh, again, with a high regard for uh, church teaching authorities uh, and and the ways that that authority and the way that that can be exercised, um, is that uh, some of this is not good enough. It's not good enough to bind consciences. All right. So as we move to conclude part one of our interview, Jason, I'm wondering um, how do we best help people discern which teachings or voices within the church are authoritative and which are not? Yeah. I mean, kind of, as I said in my uh, response to the first part of your question, when we have in this case, two authoritative voices and, you know, granting John's point that they're speaking at different levels of authority um, that, uh, but they, they appear to be in conflict. Um, if, if there's reasonable space, right, we can debate what counts as reasonable space um, to interpret the teachings uh, of one or the other uh, in a way that resolves the apparent conflict, um, then I think, you know, I, I favor and, and promote that interpretation. You know, it, it's interesting at this point, I just, I'm in the midst of finishing up the last of a massive five-volume history of Vatican II. And one of the things that I've always been fascinated by the history of Vatican II, not just the the documents themselves and the theology in the documents, but the the politics of it. And it really is political, right? The, the church is a spirit-infused, spirit-guided, but, but still human institution. Wait a minute. Are you saying there's politics in the church? <laughs> I know this is a new revelation. I hope I didn't scandalize anyone by, 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 by saying that. Um, but but what I see working out as the you know the different votes are taken on the different schema and so on, and especially uh, you know two of the most uh, you know troublesome documents uh, that had the most debate were uh, Gaudium et Space, right? The, the Pastoral Constitution of the Church in the Modern World. Even debate over that title should it be called a Pastoral Constitution because uh, such a document never existed before in the history of the Church, and and also uh, Dignitatis Humanae on religious freedom, mm-hmm. where a lot of these yep. conscience issues are. Are, are, are risen. And I think, again, treated in a very nuanced fashion about the balance of religious freedom and respect for individual conscience while living in a society subject to legitimate civil authorities and, and their decisions. So, um, so the point being is that as we see our, 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 our own shepherds, right, the Episcopacy, uh, deal with these things, right? John referred to, you know, some of the, the debates going back to Vatican I and so on, and papal primacy and, and infallibility, that, yes, it does work itself on the end, right? That, that's, you know, that, that's a faith we all share as Catholics, that the church is guiding us, but that its guidance does evolve, right? Not in the fundamental doctrine, not in the, the fundamental dogmatic beliefs, but then how they do get applied into different situations. And I think what we're all struggling with is the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic is a, as a global pandemic, is a uh, not completely novel situation, but novel certainly in, in our lifetimes, novel post-Vatican II. And, and, and Catholic bioethics honestly has not um, adequately prepared itself uh, to address this. 
you know, in our defined principles, which is one reason why, uh, to, to do a shameless plug, right, I'm, I'm co-editing a special issue of, of Nas- the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly uh, on Catholic perspectives on public health ethics, right? There, there isn't a lot of literature. There's not a lot of, of stuff that's been written by Catholic bioethicists on public health ethics in particular. So we're all kind of teasing out our own thinking as the COVID-19 pandemic progresses. John Burhaney, response, how do we best help people to discern which teachings or voices within the the church are authoritative and which are not? You know, I, I think one thing that we can do is to tell people the range of issues to be considered. You know, for example, uh, one issue that, of course, we sort of started with and focused on uh, to some extent is that issue of abortion-derived cell lines. Uh, And that is indeed an issue. Uh, There are more issues. I brought up uh, proper stewardship of life and health and, you know, the moral duty to use ordinary and proportionate means to conserve one's life. And we could bring in the teaching on conscience itself. I think we can bring in um, teachings as well uh, on the common good uh, and on subsidiarity. But I, I just not to say we're going to, you know, get get all these things discussed. But just to tell people, <laughs> there, there's not a uh, necessarily a binary way uh, of making these decisions. I think we should want people to approach this as an ethical decision. And not merely as something to to get done, but as an ethical decision, and and help them to engage in true ethical discernment. And I think one one thing is to just say, there's there are several considerations that go into this. And after that, I think that there are. I, I do think it is helpful to tell people that the church teaches with authority uh, on some things. And you need to know these things. You need to know why they're authoritative uh, and what you mean. And the church allows a great amount of liberty on a number of other teachings. You know, there there is this uh, myth, uh, this false notion that that uh, Catholics are, you know, in the old days, I guess they would be waiting for some missive from the Pope to arrive in the mail and. <laughs> And now I guess we're waiting for a, a text or a tweet uh, with instructions from the Pope to tell us what to do on everything. And of course, that's not how it works. There is a legitimate uh, range for prudential decision making. I think we need to tell people that too. And ultimately, and, and maybe we can get back to this uh, in, in another part of the interview, help people to discern ethically and to make a good ethical decision. So I think, uh, I think both those things, uh, I hope, will help. This concludes part one of my interview with Jason Eberl and John Berhaney. In part two, we discuss Jason's claim that Catholics who object to vaccine mandates exhibit either scrupulosity or voluntary ignorance. We also discuss ways that people can properly form their conscience on the mandate issue. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. 
Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.